Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is David Bullard. David is a licensed psychologist and licensed marriage and family therapist, has been practicing individual psychotherapy and couples therapy in San Francisco for over 30 years. He is clinical professor of medicine and clinical professor of medical psychology at the University of California, San Francisco, where he was affiliated with the Human Sexuality Program and the Behavioral Medicine Unit, hosted international symposia on sexuality and medical conditions, and taught courses to medical students, nurses, interns, residents, faculty, therapists, and other healthcare providers. He currently consults with the Symptom Management Service, which provides outpatient palliative care, at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, and is a member of the Professional Advisory Group, Spiritual Care Services, Clinical Pastoral Education Program at UCSF. David is a guest teacher at San Francisco Zen Center's City Center and Green Gulch. David's practice and teaching have been supported and deepened by exploring Bhutan with Dr. Robert Thurman, by advanced training in the trauma therapy somatic experiencing in Brazil with Dr. Peter Levine, and by by enjoying time in the west of Ireland with David White and others in celebration of the poetry of the human soul. So with that, please help me welcome David. Hi, David. How are you? Good morning, Jacob. I'm really pleased to meet you and to be here and honored and looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to talk to you today because um, as we were talking about before we started the recording, intimacy and relationships is not um, a topic that we've explored much on the podcast and obviously being a very important one since we're all in relationships of one form or another, um, I thought it was poignant and important to, to explore this topic um, and with someone who has so much experience with relationships in, in the context of psychotherapy and elsewhere. So, you know, obviously intimacy isn't a new topic, but it seems like intimacy, I've noticed their intimacy workshops and trainings have been kind of burgeoning recently. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who um, remarked on the fact, he travels quite a bit uh, teaching workshops, and he remarked on the fact that he sees a lot of intimacy workshops starting to... Um, happen at, at in the at yoga centers, particularly in English-speaking countries outside the U.S. So I'm curious if you see this as well, and um, and if you do, what what you what do you think is kind of causing this awakening to the importance of intimacy? Well, that's starting off with a interesting question. I'm not that tuned into the wide world of of yoga other than I've had a great yoga teacher for three years, Nora Mm. Burnett, and we're all older, uh, most of us over 65, and I love yoga. I have seen some of the workshops that you're referencing, and I'm I'm glad to see it. It's really needed because in many of the spiritual communities, there are problems that come up in regard to sexuality, and it's nice to see them taking a proactive stance. So how did you become interested in working with couples on issues related to trauma and intimacy? Sort of what's the story of you coming to this work that you do? Well, I was lucky that in 1976, my first job was at the University of California in San Francisco. We had a federal grant with your parents' or grandparents' tax dollars to train people who are physically disabled 
to be sex educator counselors mm -hmm. for other people. And that was uh, quite an amazing experience. Of the first nine trainees that we had in this year-long program, seven of them used wheelchairs. And they had cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injuries. Um, and the first thing they let us know on the first day was that the space that we had at the medical center outside, there were no curb cuts for mm -hmm. wheelchairs and there were no accessible bathrooms. Mm. So we had them write a letter to the chancellor and within two weeks we had everything we needed set up to help support them. But it really brought home to us the social context that we all have about our feelings about our sexuality. And if you, your culture gives you negative messages, it's, it's really a detriment. So we really learned more from our trainees than we knew. And uh, it was such a powerful experience about particularly people who were perhaps quadriplegic who still felt really good about being a sexual being, mm -hmm. even if they didn't participate in the uh, culturally approved norms of heterosexual intercourse a certain number of times a month or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So it was a really powerful six-year experience for those of us who were involved in it. In my private practice, I was, in those days, we were practicing something called sex therapy that came up from Masters and Johnson, and it was all the rage. Mm -hmm. Physicians in California were mandated to take a 10-hour weekend course, wow. as well as psychotherapists. And required by required law. Required by law to wow. take a course in a bigger viewpoint about human sexuality, but including sex therapy. Mm -hmm. And they were not always um, eager to spend a weekend doing that, but they were <laughs> mandated to do it to get their licenses. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun to we tried to use humor as well as giving some good messages to broaden their ideas basically beyond, I think it was the tyranny of heterosexual intercourse, to allow people to begin to talk better with each other, which then led to my focusing on sexuality and intimacy issues with couples. And that became more, I think over the years, less behavioral and less sex therapy and more conversational, how to talk about intimate issues with partners, often needing to get beyond the disappointments that people feel in intimate relationships in order to do that. Yeah. So, you know, you've been at this work a long time and, and I'm, I'm, uh, as you've been working, you know, the, the culture has changed a bit and in, into a time where it seems like, you know, there's a lot of, at least on the surface, sex positivity, right? But sex positivity doesn't necessarily translate to intimacy. So I'm curious what you see as still being the kind of negative messages that culture is sending, even in, in the context of a culture that purports to be, you know, positive around issues or, of sex. Boy, those are, that's uh, certainly a big question, and I'll take a stab at it. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> Well, to begin with, it's difficult, I think, for most of us still, even in a sex-positive world, it may be too positive mm -hmm. if you consider the ubiquitousness of pornography and the kinds of things that maybe give distorted messages about yeah. 
what sexuality is like. Years ago, a colleague of ours wrote a book, and he outlined the myths about sexuality, and there are many, many of them. One of them being that you're not supposed to be, to talk about it. If it's really great, you shouldn't have to communicate your needs. So that's that's pretty difficult to live up to. I think of sexuality and intimacy both as inherently being disappointing. To counter the message that we get from movies and some other media that sexuality is supposed to be just terrific. And <laughs> most of us don't always live up to that, or some of us don't ever live up to those images. So finding a way to, within yourself, to find a, a sexual acceptance, mm -hmm. it's so connected to self-esteem, especially in our culture, that it's, um, it's good to realize you can be yourself and have your own needs. You don't even have to be sexually active to still consider yourself a sexual being because mm -hmm. inherently we are yeah so so what you're saying essentially is that the 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 myth that you should be sexually satisfied and feel like your sex is terrific at all times is itself causing a kind of dissatisfaction in people exactly mm. well said could I Read a quote that's my favorite quote. I've, I've read it to second-year medical students. I've, I found it a few years ago. It was from M. Scott Peck, who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first self-help books, very spiritually oriented. About eight years later, he wrote a sequel. And my mother at the time in Florida uh, sent me the second book, uh, to further my continuing education, I'm sure. And the first thing I did, I looked in the index to find out what he was going to say about sex because in the interim bef between having this blockbuster book come out and the second book, he had met with the Dalai Lama mm. and the Pope and spiritual leaders, philosophers, the top known psychotherapists and uh, as well as other educators and very learned people. And I wanted to know, after all of that exposure, I wondered what he would say about sexuality. And yes, I please read it. Just happened to have it. So here's his quote. Sex is a problem for everyone. Indeed, for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, or maybe even for a couple of years, if we are lucky, we may feel that we have solved the problem of sex. But then again, of course, we change or our partners change, or the whole ball game changes. And once again, we are left trying to scramble over that obstacle with this built-in feeling that we can get over it when actually we never can. However, in the process of trying to get over it, we learn a great deal about vulnerability and intimacy and love. So the reason that's my favorite quote is because it um, includes all of us and I think is a realistic picture of what sexuality is in human life. So you, uh, a couple of moments ago, you mentioned pornography and I, you know, I, I think most of us are kind of privy to the, at least the general idea that it offers a distorted idea of sexuality. But I'm curious kind of more specifically 
about maybe the ways that you've seen like pornography affect um, people's understanding of sex in your work? Another interesting question that I'll make an attempt at, which is um, certainly it's the easiest way for people to get sexual satisfaction, and I'm mm-hmm. not against erotica right. and nonviolent, consensual, uh, life-affirming sexual videos and that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, it's it's a question about how easy it can be to become a problem for some people. I myself don't work with sexual compulsive people that often Mm -hmm. at all. I refer them to real specialists, but it can be a a way to avoid the critical, difficult challenges of an intimate relationship and talking about hard things. Mm -hmm. So for some people, it leads to avoidance of intimacy. Yeah. And on the other hand, for some people, it's a wonderful outlet and they may, for a variety of reasons, not have available partners and want to en- enhance their own physical and, and sexual sense of well-being and totally available for people for that can be a, a real positive in people's lives as well. Right. So there is a way in which it can both augment intimacy but also detract from it depending on how it's used. And then some people enjoy watching it with a partner or maybe multiple partners. Right. So uh, we live in this age of uh, enhanced everything, it seems like, with mm-hmm. technology. Yeah. I do actually want to talk about technology in, in a minute, but one of the questions that I had, you know, just based on the fact that you've been working in this area for 30 years with, in, in, with couples, I'm I'm curious just because I'm always interested in kind of the cultural shifts but um you know have you do you see have you seen basic issues remain the same over those 30 years or have you seen kind of new um uh kind of new issues or different kind of issues come become central in 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 couples you know based on kind of the timeline or the time that we're in Does that question make sense? It does totally. Again, provocative for myself to think over that course of time. I, I guess in just a very simple way, I would say back in, um, in the late 70s because the Masters and Johnson revolution for sex therapy where we now had tools that could help men who had had difficulty with erection. Uh, my dear colleague Lonnie Barbach wrote an amazing book called For Yourself which was the first book that really spoke to women about their own uh, giving them permission to pleasure themselves, to learn what works for them, and to orgasm. And she set up groups for women to be able to learn that, not where they actively did sexual activities in the group at all. The group was a support group to encourage each of them. So it was a whole different time. We in those days had mandatory workshops for physicians and psychotherapists in California. It was mandated by the legislature. And we put on these workshops, including showing them films that we would 
today just lump in with pornography because uh, we didn't have them available back then. So getting people more exposed, and we they termed it desensitization, hmm. um, looks kind of antiquated from today's world where we have such ready access to sexually explicit films. So the, the way that things have changed is probably more that people are expecting more from sexuality from each other than they did back then. That's a wild generalization, but there's a lot of a sense of availability of other partners with um, the online dating apps and even the, the ones that cater to people who are already in a relationship. So there's just a huge change in the world since then. Mm. So uh, continuing on that topic then, you know, I'm curious, because I always like to ask these sort of list-based questions. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us maybe, you know, either a, f- a few or three or four of the biggest kind of contemporary or modern obstacles to intimacy. Well, this is just my perspective, but communication seems Mm. to be the biggest one. And if people are, going back to that quote that I presented earlier, if they're feeling that sex is a problem in their life, but they can't talk about it. uh, I remember years ago, I was with a woman co-therapist at the medical school, and we had a sex therapy clinic. Mm -hmm. And a young woman came in, she was about 18 years old, and she said she had dyspareunia. Mm. And um, one of us, my co-therapist or I, one of us asked her, uh, we we, we certainly knew what that term meant medically, but we asked her, how do you define that term? And she said, well, when my boyfriend has intercourse with me, it really hurts. Mm. We paused and uh, we asked her a series of questions like, well, how recently has this happened? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, about four or five months ago. I said, really? And how is it a problem now then? And she said, well, I still remember that pain, Mm -hmm. and I worry that it's going to happen. And uh, as a result of that, I'm avoiding sex with my partner. And we asked her, do you ever talk with your partner about the pain? She said, no. And I said, well, what do you do when you, back four months ago when you felt the pain, what did you do? And she said, I asked him to hurry up, but (laughs) paradoxically, it took him longer. (laughs) And my woman co-therapist and I looked at her and said, we have an idea for you. How about if you just said, stop, (laughs) and you knew that you could get him to stop? Wouldn't that kind of take care of your fear about this worry about the future of having pain? And she said, oh, I couldn't say that to him, could I? And we said, why not? And she said, well, I've heard that men get frustrated and and blue balls if they don't get to ejaculate and so we just opened up that discussion to show her and and help her see that there are so many other options than just gritting her teeth and getting through it so that's the sort of example of how people really need to talk with each other about what their needs are yeah one what happens if because i hear that and that seems like such a fundamental issue 
but it seems like in a lot of situations, people don't have the actual, they don't have the communicative tools, right, to even know how to talk about some of these things, which is obviously this is the example of, you know, you giving her tools or teaching her new tools that she might, you know, employ. Um, but what's your advice then to couples who maybe are having these communicative issues? Do they just come see you, <laughs> David? <laughs> no, I'm probably winding down a bit uh, in my practice. But, uh, well, one would be to make it attitudinally acceptable to have these problems in the first place. Right. Again, Such we all have point. not just sexual, sex is a problem, but intimacy is a problem mm-hmm. because we're going to have disappointment. I like to point out to people in my office sometimes from a Buddhist point of view, sometimes I don't tell them it's a Buddhist point of view, but I might say, um, do you know that you've got, um, your your partner is sitting right here, but do you know there are two two Sally's there's there's yeah what do you mean they they might say you mean the good Sally and the bad Sally (laughs) well we can all we can all do that but no what I'm referring to is there's the human being sitting next to you on the couch right now breathing in and breathing out but the other Sally you spend most of your time with that's the conceptual Sally in your head yeah it's a story about Sally it's made up of all your history together there's some distortion because we all have some distortion about transference phenomena and uh, your job here in in our couples conversation is to kind of update your software yeah. of who is this person sitting with you right now and that's one of the directions I go. Hmm. Do you see um, social media, going back to that question, social media or technology in general as um, an obstacle to intimacy today? Oh, it can be both an obstacle and a, a wonderful thing. I know many people who are keeping in contact with their grandchildren or something like yeah. that through one of the platforms, um, WhatsApp or Face FaceTime or something. If I think the the gist of your question though goes back to the number of times I think we've all experienced it where you've been texting and it gets into something that might be a touchy sensitive topic and Texting or email is a terrible way to communicate, yeah, yeah. especially for people. I've seen them come in and they'll have, uh, they've received a, an extensive email of uh, upset by their partner, and the partner that might take them a, have taken them a half an hour to write that email, during which they had no other input into the image they had of their partner. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they were having a conversation, they can constantly correct, modify, and and uh, otherwise change what's the the story in the one person's head. Yeah, because it's sort of they're they're basically creating a space in which they can continue to flesh out that narrative that they have. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is what I see happening on on one of the things that sort of. Um, maybe frightening as a dramatic word, but it concerns me is the state of communication on social media, especially particularly on Facebook. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's just a lot of aggression and a lot of anger and a lot of projection, just people using um, 
other people on the internet as their kind of, you know, punching bag as a way to kind of get rid or manifest their anger in some way that, that makes them feel better, I guess, in the kind of immediate term. So, you know, do you see that as an issue? And where do we kind of, you know, from your perspective, how do we move away from that? Or how do we um, uh, use social media as a way to, or the internet as a way to communicate effectively when there isn't a flesh and blood person in front of us? Wow. <laughs> I wish I wish I knew the answer to that. I'm not on social media for the most oh, part. Yeah. I was uh, I signed up for Facebook several years ago, and just signed up because my uh, nephew had said it's a great way to keep track of what yeah. your kids are doing when they're in college. Mm-hmm. And after I signed up, within 20 minutes, I got a, an email or a text back then from my daughter saying. Dad, or Facebook, question mark, question mark, question mark. And when I read that, I thought, oh, I guess it's not cool to have your dad on Facebook. So I immediately canceled my Facebook thing. And I wrote her back, and I said, dear Anna, I'm so sorry. It must be embarrassing to have your dad on Facebook. So I, I signed off. And then she wrote me again, and she said, Dad, the only thing worse than having your dad on Facebook is having a dad with one friend and no interests. <laughs> oh man! So maybe that—that's the. And tra- you haven't trauma. been back on since. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awful. Occasionally, I'll sign on briefly to in order to go to somebody's web page to find out what they're they're up to. But then I, uh, if I remember, I quickly sign off. But your your question is a hugely important one because this is we're seeing it. Even even at the political level, of course, yeah. we've just got to find a way. I don't know how to how to make it a more real time human communication. I think the terminology is IRL <laughs> in real life, <laughs> and we need that. So, yeah, yeah. I think you know uh, you know embedded in your um, in what you're saying is kind of the message that there is a world you know there is the possibility of living in a world without some of these tools and while they are certainly helpful in you know in circumstances like you're talking about even though <laughs> unfortunately your daughter shamed you out of the social media world but you know I, I think a lot of times it's just it it, it does play into people's insecurities or it offers people opportunity to kind of um, not deal with some of the the more problematic you know aspects of themselves I'm I'm having a fantasy of things getting worse mm-hmm. so what if we combine the idea of uh, not pornography but what if it reached the point where fear of missing out included when you went on the Facebook page yeah. you saw pictures and videos that were explicitly sexual of your friends having oh my wild gosh. crazy sex and of course they're it's not, not gonna, too far away and they're not going to post the photographs when the guys didn't get their erections yeah. or the women really just had pain or somebody threw up they probably won't post those yeah well that's pretty much instagram and, and facebook already i oh, mean no. it's it's not quite sexual yet but it's sort of like look at my amazing life and how and all the beautiful experiences i didn't put the experience of me crying myself to sleep last night you know right. <laughs> right. um so uh 
so that's cool. So, so we did, can appreciate the present moment doesn't hasn't gone quite that far yet. Yeah, yeah. So I'm inter- You know, we've talked a, a kind of around the topic of trauma, but obviously trauma is a huge topic, especially right now. In fact, I think you know maybe even more than intimacy, trauma sensitive trainings. You know, um, trauma sensitive yoga, for example, trauma sensitive this and and really there's this vibrant conversation happening around trauma, which is really quite refreshing. Um, but there's often, it seems to me that there's, uh, there, everything becomes trauma in such a way that, you know, now, you know, we're, we're trying to cultivate a space in which no one is ever triggered. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on the dialogue around trauma, you know, or from, from your perspective, are, are people getting it right? Is there, is there, um, you know, what is your, what is your approach to this new, conversation or this fresh conversation around trauma there are many interesting things going on right now yeah from very um, powerful enacted technological advances in transcranial magnetic stimulation that takes care of people's treatment-resistant depression in five days of treatment. That's one thing going on in some research at Stanford. But more uh, immediate in my world, I've a colleague, Phil Manfield, who for 20 years has toured the world teaching EMDR trauma therapy Mm -hmm. to therapists who specialize in trauma. And he came up with a very brief, quick way sounds crazy, but is very effective about taking the cringe out of traumatic or disturbing memories. Mm-hmm. Part of what PTSD is, is like a um, an error in the nervous system, believing that when you have a memory, that whatever the memory is of, is happening now. Yeah. Think of a guy or a service person back from Afghanistan. He hears a big noise in the other room, and it uh, throws him, floods him with imagery from when a bomb went off near him. And he may have a lot harder time coming down to a calm baseline state than you or I would if we don't have that kind of PTSD. Mm-hmm. In this new, the old ways of treating trauma at the VA medical centers, for example, they have to have exposure to the memory. You have to go through the memory. The technical term is prolonged exposure. Mm -hmm. Another technique is called cognitive processing therapy, where you bring the memory to the surface and explore it minutely and write about it and talk about it. The unfortunate part of that is trauma memories can be so bad that in the case of the VA, a recent study came out, VA system-wide found 50 to 60% of people drop out of that kind of therapy because it's just overwhelming. Uh, Some new approach called the flash technique has been helpful to people by not having to consciously deal with the memory, but it appears to be dealt with at a subliminal level, which is kind of crazy to talk about, but when you get into memory reconsolidation research, you can find terms like perceptual error, which Mm. goes back to my comment about the nervous system being kind of tricked with PTSD to think it's it's happening now. And when you do this simple meditation for 15 minutes or so, it seems to reset things 
and it's no longer seen as happening now. You still have the memory. You may still label it as a bad thing or a sad thing or I wish it hadn't happened, but your body doesn't tense up in mm. reaction to it and you don't get overwhelming feelings. Mm. So how does that meditation, what's the structure of that meditation like? I, you know, I hear what you're saying that it's not an actual re bringing into cognition, the actual memory itself. So what exactly are you doing in that kind of meditation? Well, Currently, it's been taught to 3,000 trauma therapists around the world, and it is taught as a therapist exercise, treating as a technique to, to help the, the client mm -hmm. deal with it. But it seemed to me quite easily adapted to meditation. So right. I've taught it to cancer patients who were, had fear of recurrence, and also to medical personnel who are exposed to a lot of human suffering, mm -hmm. and we call that secondary or vicarious trauma. So the structure of this simple meditation, and I have to caution the listeners, I'm not advocating anyone right. try this no themselves without yeah. a chance to, to really um, try it out more under with some supervision. But it's basically after you've recognized a particular disturbing memory, you forget about it. And now in what we call your working memory or your present consciousness, you bring into it something that really engages you. Mm -hmm. You could even play music and sing along with it or have a visual image, a memory. Oh, some people say it's, I'm at home petting my dog. And some people are very visual. I myself am not, but many people are very visual and can, it's a visualization of something engaging. It could be an activity mm. like skiing, which okay. I tr the first time I tried it, I thought that would be my good positive <laughs> engaging image until I realized that I have a little fear factor when I'm flying <laughs> along the slope. So I changed it to seeing my grandson come running down the street, two-year-old, and giving him a hug. You do that, then you do what's called bilateral stimulation those of your listeners who have experience with EMDR, that's called eye movement desensitization reprocessing, the, eye, the bilateral stimulation, or their eyes are moving back and forth. But there are other formats you can use. One is simply right hand tapping right thigh, left hand tapping left thigh. You alternate the tapping. Sounds crazy. And then the third aspect is you blink. And you blink three times and you do another three times and another three times in a sequence of maybe f five sets of blinks that way. Now, what is that doing? We don't know neurologically. We don't understand why this seems to be such a powerful technique and why it works so well. And it may be that all three of those things, which are a little tricky to do, and it's like padding your tummy and, and rubbing your tummy and patting your head. Yeah. It's so difficult I couldn't even say it properly. But, <laughs> uh, but getting that going overloads the working memory. Mm -hmm. And at some subliminal level, the traumatic memory gets cleansed wow. of the difficult emotional and difficult sensory input that's otherwise attached to it. I did this with a 94-year-old woman. Mm. this technique and she wanted me to tell the story to other people I even have her recorded talking about it, her experience she's a retired scientist 
and was very interested in doing a, a technique that might help her with a particular medical issue that one of her children had that she was worried about, that the medical issue had passed and she knew her daughter was going to be fine, but she still found herself more anxious than usual about it. And her positive engaging memory was of being 13 years old with her father catching a 50-pound tuna. Wow. That was an 80-year-old memory. Wow. And then she told me her father died a year later, and she loved her dad. And so at one level, this exercise just allowed her to remember and savor a wonderful, the opposite of a PTSD experience, a wonderful human experience that she had shared with her father. So she did that, but her upset in the original target memory went from a uh, eight or nine on a zero to 10 scale, 10 the worst you can imagine feeling, zero no upset at all when I remember it, and it went down to uh, zero. Wow. So there's something about allowing, kind of flooding our perception with a positive memory that can have this reverberating impact on the residual traumas from other periods of our lives without actually having to go into the trauma itself. Exactly. And this is contrary to every other trauma approach. Yeah. And that's why it's so exciting because people are able to, they don't even have to tell the therapist and if in the therapy mode, you don't even have to tell the therapist what the memory is about. Yeah. In a workshop in Atlanta last month for a national trauma therapy association, my colleagues for an hour and a half presented a case, and then they had everyone in the audience do it, and they asked for people, volunteers, if anyone found that it did not work for them. And a woman raised her hand, she came up, and they did it a little bit more with her, another 10 minutes or so, and this time it worked when she did a little bit extra about it. This was at the very end of the Kavanaugh hearings, Mm -hmm. and a lot of men and women in this country were pretty stirred up about things. And at the end of the practice and her her scale on the 0 to 10 upset scale, she went from a 10, she said, down to a 0. And then without any detail, she volunteered to the group that it had been a rape memory. Mm. So these kinds of very powerful, terrible memories that people carry with them and then get triggered into can be helped. I'm speaking a little bit in advance of its availability out in the world other than through the 3,000 people who've been trained in it. But we hope to have some materials developed so that people will be able to do it on a self-help basis. And am I am I correct in that this the overall strategy or method that you're talking about is is EMDR? It came out of the EMDR okay. world, but it's basically orthogonal or just not really related to EMDR practice. Currently, the people who are doing it are, of course, feel it's very important to be an EMDR-trained clinician doing it with a client. But I have found it there's very little downside. I don't see people getting re-traumatized at all from the way this approach goes, and that's why I've taught it to cancer patients and other non-psychotherapy people. Hmm. So 
we're talking about this method where you know the 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 focus is on um, a kind of positive memory. But I'm wondering if you obviously trigger is generally talked about as something that is a bad thing. Is there ever a context in which being triggered is helpful in the service of healing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's an opportunity for self-compassion. Right. If you're not overwhelmed, we are supposed to learn from suffering. And I always preface it when I'm showing this to people how to do it, that the meaning of their suffering will will stay with them. and But you should be able to get the meaningfulness of difficult times without having your body and your emotions get so overloaded that you're really uh, thrown out of equanimity and thrown off track for a while. I've been interested in teaching it to people in different meditation communities because they sometimes have, I'm told, sometimes have a three-day workshop with individuals who are um, beginners Mm -hmm. and sometimes even quite experienced. And during the meditation, if it's a group silent retreat and they get disturbed and it gets overwhelming, sometimes they're asked, they'll have to be removed because can be a little bit too disturbing to all the other people. And if they, a friend of mine was in a silent retreat who knew about using this and a very disturbing memory came up for him about his dead spouse and he was able to use it pretty immediately, very silently. Mm -hmm. So I think it might be a useful tool to let people know about who are beginning to meditate in a long-term situation. Right. such as I described. Mm. Okay, so I want to ask a little bit about um, the connection that you see between um, intimacy and relationships. This is another big question, so I apologize. <laughs> uh, the the And then I want to kind of transition into some of the your influences in your own work, but how do you see um, intimacy in relationships or the health of relationships translating to a social and political level? Do you see any correlation between um, the state of relationships and what's happening in our kind of more political, you know, context? Hmm. I'd like to, with your permission, switch the focus of that question a little bit because it's... uh, uh, still on my mind, I think we can put together the trauma issue with what you're speaking about now with yeah. conversation, and maybe it'll address what you asked. And that's that when you're sitting, we all experience feelings in the present moment, but I think we all know there are times when our current feelings are turbocharged because something triggered us into the past. So, for example, with couples, I'm going to avoid the political part for a moment, yeah, but go for it. <laughs> um, I hope to come back to that. So pretend there's a couple, and this is not always the case, but often the case, that in getting to know them as they talk about their history together and how they try to talk with each other, the presenting issue might be that one of the one of the women, let's say it's two women, one woman feels the other is too critical of her, and they live together. Mm -hmm. And the other woman feels that her partner 
uh, it abandons her and stays away and doesn't give her enough connection. Mm-hmm. And as we look at that, we find out that the, the first woman, when she looks at her childhood, she had a father she could never please. Mm-hmm. And she kind of developed a sensitivity to being criticized. And then we find out from the second woman that she had a father or a mother who was an airline pilot, and she loved that parent very much, but that parent was constantly flying away and abandoning her. So her wound was abandonment. The first woman's wound was being criticized. Mm -hmm. So how it shows up in their relationship leads to a polarization, an exaggeration. So imagine that after their honeymoon phase, the first one uh, felt abandoned when the second one came home an hour later than the first one thought she would. And so was a little irritated and maybe uh, made a comment about the her partner's dress or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so the second one, I'm, I'm it's uh, trying to keep track of which one is which. <laughs> the one who felt has an issue with abandonment is going to try to reach out and connect up more with the other one. And sometimes we do that through criticism. Yeah. In the in some of the research with infants, uh, they call it separation protest, that if you're feeling disconnected from your partner, you reach out through irritability. You know you can get their attention by being a little aggressive or a little angry. But if the one on the receiving side has a sensitivity to criticism, they might decide to stay away a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so it leads to a situation where the one person stays away more, the other person feels abandoned even more, and it polarizes and gets exaggerated. However, I like to tell couples that if if they identify something like that going on, where they see the influence of the past on their current communication style, it can be healing not only in the present, of course, for these two adults to learn how to talk with each other, and they can have greater compassion for the other by realizing, oh, when I come home an hour late, it triggers that poor child within you that remembered your dad who would be gone for weeks at a time, and I don't want you to suffer that way. I understand now it's not just all about me. The phrase that I like to get people to consider is you can take your partner's feelings seriously, but don't take them personally. I love that, yeah. Because there's more that involves our own wounds from other relationships that come out in our discussion because we all get triggered. Mm-hmm. Back to how that applies to the political part, um, there must be a way I just can't articulate <laughs> at yeah, the moment. I guess I'm just sort of thinking, you know, and maybe you have thoughts on this and maybe you don't, and that's totally fine. But it was as you were, and I've read this story about that couple and one of your um, written interviews, which I thought was really fantastic and very insightful. Um, but it was sort of making me think about, you know, is there any way to, um, you know, sort of realize something analogous to that in the context of a uh, of a individual relationship or a couple but in the context of like the culture wars for example so is does it make sense to say or to to um 
to look at the kind of culture war between conservatives and liberals as kind of this sort of uh, kind of a framework where there's a where each group has a kind of um, uh, tr- fundamental trauma that is then triggering the other. Um, I don't know if that's if that's too general to speak about, you know, large groups of people having that kind of a, a shared trauma. But I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, it's currently so important and such a good question in that regard. I've recently uh, just started reading The Death of Truth by Michiko Kakutani, who's mm. a New York writer, uh, excellent, and reviewing the use of propaganda, which we're back to the social media stuff. So there are things like that going on. And basic, I think the, the, we all love to be right, Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite books is by one of your New York people out here, uh, Catherine Schultz. And mm-hmm. the book is called Being Wrong. <laughs> and it's a wonderful book. I, I actually read it twice in a row. And I'm the kind of person at the time in my life, I don't get to read a lot of books straight through. I read it twice because the first chapters talk about the philosophers who have studied the human capacity for being wrong and why we don't want to admit to it. Then she had other chapter on the psychologists who've researched being wrong, such as if you stop a hundred people out on the street in almost any town in America and ask them to rank their sense of humor, something like 88% will say, I have an above average sense of humor. (laughs) Now, statistically, that's Kind of interesting way to comment. But it, it's true that we all have some of these self-deceptions that, that are actually a UC Berkeley researcher years ago said they're healthy. <laughs> it's good to think of us ourselves better than we are. Maybe that counteracts some of our deeper feelings of inadequacy. Yeah. I don't know. But then she, um, she also has a wonderful sense of lightness and humor in this whole uh, exposition in her book at one point she says in this next chapter we're going to talk about some of the more egregious examples of human error such as looking for weapons of mass destruction in iraq Mm -hmm. the near complete collapse of the international financial system in 2000 the relationship i started in in december of 2012 adding a little humor to that so I, th- I think it gets back to how hard it is for people to admit that we're wrong, which gets back to a wonderful Buddhist uh, attitude of beginner's mind mm-hmm. or the stories, I don't have the exact name, but of one of the Zen monks who was renowned and was dying and his um, he just said, oh, he was asked to reflect on what has he learned about life. And on his deathbed, he said, you know, I, it was just one mistake after another, just one stumble after another. And so accepting that how much we don't know, I think it's the Korean Zen approach, the don't know mind, mm-hmm. that in fact, when you're not telling you yourself that you know things you're not projecting the pre- the future you're not telling yourself that you know about the future if you accept that you don't know what's going to happen in the next moment you're in the present and you're enlightened yeah yeah that's a really important teaching and um i i've never heard of this book before but i uh, i wrote it down and i'm going to read it 
and go find it right after this interview because it sounds amazing. If I can add just one little yes, anecdote please. to the book. Uh, I have a dear, dear, dear friend, and we're all in our 70s, and she's a very smart, wonderful people, but I knew that her daughter felt that her mother had the need to be right mm-hmm. all the time. So I actually bought her that book and wrapped it, and we were at uh, dinner, and the daughter was sitting on one side, my friend was in the middle, and I was on her right, and as she opened the book, it's a white cover in big, bold red letters being wrong, and the daughter started laughing, 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 so that was wonderful. But the follow-up is about two years later, I thought to ask her, what did she ever think of that book called Being Wrong? And she said, oh, oh, I've got so many books, I never got to read that one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of course. <laughs> so there we are. Yeah. We all have that need to be right. Yeah. Oh, I definitely have that for sure. Uh, ask anybody close to me. <laughs> um, so I want to now segue. We've been talking. We've had a you know a long conversation already, and we haven't talked about the you know these incredible influences in your in your work in your life, um, and and one of them being the teachings of Buddhism, especially as you know. They've been transmitted through the work of um, Dr. Robert Thurman, who is also a guest on this podcast with Issa Gacharity. So um, I know you have a couple little stories you'd like to share about Bob, um, but I'm just wondering, you know, as we um, moving into those stories, if you want to talk a little bit about the way in which Buddhist philosophy or the Buddhist, you know, we've talked a little bit about it already, but other ways in which Buddhist teachings have informed your 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 work. Oh, that that's a pleasure. I'm not sure if I'm a Buddhist, and I'm not sure if I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> but my, Sounds about right. Yeah, my exposure has been uh, originally in the '60s. From I discovered Alan Watts's book Psychotherapy East and West, book, which yeah. I just found out has been reissued in 2017 mm-hmm. in paperback. That was wonderful. I loved him, and later on, I had the great luck and pleasure. My first mentor as a psychologist was a guy named Jerry Nims, who is a good friend of Alan Watts. And mm-hmm. I think they were even drinking buddies. Uh, Alan was not a, <laughs> he probably I had guess, a, lot a of those, perfect Alan. human being. <laughs> yeah. But then I'm not sure there are any perfect human beings. But there are great teachings that I got from his books. And um, I guess uh, reading as widely as I could, I never wanted to be... As a th- as a therapist, I never wanted to be a member of a particular group because that allowed members of that group sometimes to come and see me <laughs> without worry that I was uh, involved politically in any of their mm-hmm. things. Uh, I've had great, it's great being in the San Francisco Bay Area. There are many, many great organizations oh, yeah. following spiritual paths. In 2005, I had the great great luck and pleasure of traveling to Bhutan on a uh, 18-day trip with Robert Thurman in which every morning he would give us a meditation on the Lam Rim Mm -hmm. Tibetan teaching that you probably should study it over three years and he did it in 18 days and I even like to remind myself about it in just a 15 minute meditation but it's really good about the awareness of death not knowing when it's going to happen all of that how that can inform our wanting to be present and enjoy and be kind and Mm -hmm. be compassionate 
So a couple of stories about Bob that he's heard me tell before in workshops, and uh, he gets a chuckle out of it too, is um, a, going back to the nature of relationships. One is that uh, intimacy creating disappointment. I remember his wife, Nena, had said, because Bob had five children, he also at that time, this is about 12 years ago, he had maybe 25,000 Facebook friends. Mm -hmm. And she told him, Bob, with all of those people knowing you, you're going to disappoint people, so you should do it sooner rather than later. <laughs> so I loved that. The other time was a story that he told us of, uh, he's now retired from Columbia, but yeah. he tells the story that he came home, went in the kitchen, and he was just filled with a bunch of frustration about the institution of being a university professor. And yeah. it had involved graduate students and it involved the administration. And he was unloading that, just talking very kind of aggressively and angrily while Nena was cooking. And suddenly she said, shut up, Bob, before you make us both angry. <laughs> now, I love, absolutely love that story because it points out, well, which is the real Bob? If Nena had not spoken up and he felt free and had the green light to, as we all do sometimes, to just dump some of our frustrations, mm -hmm. then that would have happened. They would have gone to have dinner and she might have been upset with him. But instead, she, by making her comment, got him to wake up and, re and be present with her and he was grateful to her that she did that. Yeah. So which is the real Bob? It doesn't have anything to do so much with Bob as it does with the influence of Nena. So Bob's teaching to me to to thus uh, on this trip to Bhutan, the Buddhist kingdom, was that there is no absolute self. Mm -hmm. We all have a relative self, which means everyone experiences us differently, and in fact, from moment to moment. So we're not absolute and unchanging like a rock, and even a rock is not absolute and unchanging. Everything is going to change. I think you know, Tsongkhalpa was a 1300 AD magnificent Buddhist teacher who wrote about dependent arising, mm -hmm. which includes the notions of emptiness, but also of everything has relative relationship to everything else, so nothing exists in an absolute sense. All of that's very useful to understand when you're either in a relationship or um, working with couples. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you um, ended on that question of emptiness and, and dependent origination because um, I wanted to ask you this question um, related to this, which is, you know, if, uh, if as these teachings say, nothing has any kind of, you know, essence basically everything is sort of relational um oftentimes i've noticed and this comes from my own personal experience with um a particular interpretation of these teachings that that then means that anything that you're experiencing is somehow a projection that has no absolute substance therefore it can be you know re-understood or understood differently and what often comes up in uh, when when that is sort of when you really try to flesh that out is is well then you uh, you um, 
approach the question of, well, what about the context of like, for example, a potentially abusive relationship or, um, um, or, you know, violence in some sense. If you take that teaching to an, a kind of really radical conclusion, you would say, well, well, there is no essential abuse happening. It is only in my projection. And then people, the teachings and then become kind of, you know, a way to, to kind of bypass the situation and not actually realize it for what it is or whatever that means, because it says that there is nothing that actually is. It's all in, in relation to something else. So, so where, how do, so the question I guess is how do we walk that line between healthy boundaries, right? In the face of that potential abuse and taking responsibility for our own projected narratives of a particular situation. Very critical, important question. It makes me want to go back to the fact, and maybe it's only a relative fact, because I won't have one forever, but right now I have a nervous system, a human mm -hmm. nervous system. And we can have deep understandings of things but that's probably in our neocortex, and we also have the reptilian brain, and then the mammalian brain, the middle part of the brain, and we have knee-jerk reactions, the fight-or-flight response. So it's important to not doubt your own reality by some theorizing about how this is right. uh, some kind of a theological almost discussion. Mm -hmm. We have to live in the world of being flesh and blood and especially when it comes to abuse to put a stop to it and if it's just argument that people are engaging in it's not physical violence but a, a difficult argument the best thing to do is call a timeout mm -hmm. and walk away to allow your nervous system to calm down my my favorite quote about the nervous system comes from karen armstrong who's a very learned English philosopher and writer on the world's religions. Yeah. She's fantastic and yeah. very diminutive person. But I, I saw her give um, an interview one time, and she said in her wonderful voice, we have to remember that the human nervous system evolved in order to kill predators larger than us. And really made that point that when people are getting so angry and upset, even just verbally, it's very powerful on the nervous system. It's not a good time to have a conversation and you need to set limits and time out. I don't know. Um, it's such a big question about the abuse that happens in relationships other than uh, we all need to be as compassionate with others as we can, including helping those we know are in abusive relationships have a safe harbor to talk about it if they're having difficulty getting out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that to, the, to mention that, you know, the theoretical philosophical question is one thing, but the, you know, what's really, what really matters when entertaining those questions is kind of the state of the nervous system and being present for, you know, and, and cultivating a, a sense of presence with the nervous system because I think a lot of people don't have, they, they don't have the kind of intimacy with their own nervous system enough to even know when they are inflamed in that way. And that brings up another point that I find so powerful, so helpful to me, which is the one that <clears throat> often I'll ask someone who has 
rage problems or gets very aggressive in his manner of speech and I'll say, do you consider anger, irritation, frustration, annoyance as secondary emotions or Mm -hmm. primary? And often they'll stop and say, well, well, it's a feeling. Mm -hmm. And I'll point out to them, many people cogently make the argument that those are secondary feelings. What could possibly trigger anger, irritation, frustration, annoyance? And usually it's pain or fear or some kind of suffering that is going on, and we react to it with anger. Mm -hmm. When they can see that and go deeper, and instead of accusatorily pointing the finger at their partner and saying, you make me feel so bad, if they can instead put it in terms of, I feel so sad and, and bad when you don't connect up with me. That's a whole other easier way to hear it than when none of us like having the finger pointed at us and being accused. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I can remember even from my own personal relationships how what a different experience it is when you can actually get into that space of just articulating how you're feeling without it being a kind of blame cycle, right? Because that angry blame cycle, which is so easy to fall into. I mean, we all want to think that the other person's doing something wrong. <laughs> so, and, and that would make us right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the great. homework for everyone. Read Being Wrong by, by Catherine Schultz. Um, and the last part about all of this is just the, the importance of feelings. Yeah. Years ago, I heard a woman neuroscientist say the fundamental nature of consciousness is emotional. Mm-hmm. And maybe it, back then it took a woman to be able to make that point. But it's, it's very powerful, and I see it being very important. In the same sentence, when you hear couples or anyone speaking, they can mix up a feeling aspect with a doing aspect or a behavioral aspect or a thought aspect and if you could just help them get it back down to just pure feelings which in the moment that you feel it you feel it yeah it's it really helps if the other person can hear it without judgment and be open to hearing it and it's easier to do that than it is to easily hear an accusation that you're a bad person yeah yeah, I think that's that's such an important point, the uh, coming back to feelings and not excluding feelings from an understanding of what consciousness is. Because I And this actually segues nicely into the last question I wanted to ask you, which was related to <clears throat> the ways in which, at least I, you know, maybe you don't see it this way, but I've, I see a lot of spiritual practice is very kind of isolated or it's it's about sort of an individual doing their kind of adventure in consciousness and in a way that sort of sometimes transcends feelings or they want to kind of you know the uncomfortable feelings that might happen in relationships isn't a part of their spiritual path and what their spiritual path is when they sit down on the cushion and they're you know in their own individual world so i guess you know as a way to end how would you um, encourage people to spiritual practitioners to start including relationship as a spiritual practice? Yeah, it brings up the image of the monk who goes up in the cave for three years, three months, three days, three hours, and uh, oh no, it, 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 it 
the complexity of human relations. A great yeah. story for that is from Jinpa. Uh, Thupten Jinpa was the Dalai Lama's main English translator, has been the editor of many of his books. And when he was um, when he was quite young, his family left Tibet, came to India, but his mother died when he was under six years old. His father joined a monastery, and then he went to a school, and then he became a monk. He learned English. He had quite a capacity to pick up languages, and he learned a lot of English from hippies that were traveling mm -hmm. around. And then the Dalai Lama had heard about him. I think he was near Gandan Monastery at the time. And because of especially being able to even include colloquialisms and idiomatic, idiomatic uh, phrasing, the Dalai Lama for years had him travel around the world as translating, which meant that Jinpa had to learn these very esoteric and very deep teachings, mm -hmm. not only in Sanskrit and Tibetan, but English. And the Dalai Lama might speak for five minutes or ten minutes, and then Jinpa would have to translate for his English audiences. After a while, though, he realized that he had never really had a family, and he knew in his heart that he wanted a family. And he had to tell that to the Dalai Lama, which felt painful for him at some point because he didn't want any of the monks to feel that he was saying that being in the real world, having a family was more important or better than yeah. being a monk. So he did it very open-heartedly with the Dalai Lama, who then made it extremely, um, wonderfully made it possible for him to go to Cambridge, got his PhD in religious studies. But as he was leaving to do that, because he told the Dalai Lama, I, I would like to find a woman to get married to and to have children with. And the Dalai Lama said, well, make sure you find the right person to be with, because I've seen a lot of heartbreak from divorce. But he said, uh, now that you are taking off your robes and going out into the world, now you will learn the true meaning of suffering. <laughs> and when he tells that story, I just find it so uh, heartwarming. But I think it gets back to your point. A, a spiritual practice is we live in, a, for those of us who live in a world, and even those who are in communities with other monks or within spiritual communities where they're not having personal relationships, they still often run into the challenge of this other human being yeah. seeing things differently. And to me, the answer to that, not only the communication, if they get better at it, helps heal the here and now, but I think when we do that, it helps heal some of the relationship wounds that we all have because we grew up with imperfect people as parents. Yeah, yeah. Wow, so this has been <clears throat> such an interesting and important conversation, and I'm so glad I got to have it with you, David. Um, but to end, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share uh, any final words that you have that you want to share, and, and then also... Um, any upcoming workshops or trainings, retreats, anything that you're involved in that you might want to share with our audience? Well, I have been so blessed by having some connections, which then make more connections through mm -hmm. the Buddhist and other spiritual communities and incorporating that into the workshops. One of them will be with Issa Jukes. 
Gucciardi and Berkeley at her Foundation of the Sacred Stream. I believe that's the end of January. And another one at the San Francisco Zen Center with Linda Galligan, who is the president of the Zen Center and a wonderful therapist. And we're going to be talking about trauma in -hmm. relationships and ways to repair that. It's uh, always a delight for me to be able to talk about these issues and to learn from the people who come to these workshops. It's really all about being human, and we're all trying to learn about it and be the best that we can be. So it's been a great blessing to me. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, David, for your time. I've really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. You're welcome.